0: Let me invite you to turn to Romans chapter 6 this morning, Romans chapter 6, and it's encouraging to sing that song in preparation for coming to the pulpit because it is uh, really only because the Father has given us the Spirit that we can hope that His work will be accomplished. And it's my prayer this morning as we look at God's Word that the Spirit of God will give us understanding and, uh, and a heart to yield and obey the truth of God. Romans chapter 6. Part of what has been driving, really, as we work through this passage, and I think the entire book of Romans, really, is that belief drives behavior. The Scriptures lay the foundation of our lives in truth. And that truth, then, moves out into how we live it. And and it, it operates that way. Uh, for us all the time, whether we recognize it or not, we are making choices based on things we accept as true. That's what I mean by belief. And sometimes those aren't, uh, aren't deliberate conscious choices. We've just grown up having our lives shaped. We, we actually spend our days under the influence of messages that are shaping the way we think and interpret the world. And often our thoughts and interpretations of the world are wrong because we have been uh we have been uh enculturated by messages that are contrary to the scripture. But if we hold those beliefs, they still drive our behavior. I was standing in c v s uh earlier just yesterday or the day before I think I had to make a couple trips but I'm standing there and they've got this big, it's almost as big as a, a pop vending machine, but it's a lottery vending machine. And as I'm standing at the counter, I'm watching people go up to it and I'm thinking, they really think that this is going to make their life better. right? That's, that's I mean, they've been sold a line that says there's hope inside that box. And, and the only reason that box is there is because 99.9% of the people who put money in it never get anything back, right? They're, they're not actually going to lose money. They're going to win money. Now, not the people outside the box, the people who are controlling the inside of the box. They're the ones who are going to win. That's, that's the whole process, right? They don't keep handing out pots because they're losing money. They're actually making money. Most people are losing. The overwhelming amount of people are losing. Yet people who really could much better use their money believe, "Ah, maybe next one, maybe the next one, maybe the next one. Right? The belief is driving the behavior. And the belief could be foolish. I mean, there's all kinds of things that drive our behaviors that don't make sense. What we have to do is work through the process of making certain that the beliefs that control our behaviors are actually the revealed truth of God. The one who knows all things and has spoken to us establishes the foundation from which we should live. And that's what Paul's doing in this book of Romans. He's laying out the truth of God for what it means to know God and be made right with God and be able to therefore live for God. In in the the sixth chapter which we've been looking at for a few weeks, Paul is answering the question, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? Cuz here's here's the 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 close of chapter 5, sin sin increased but grace abounded even more. So one wrong belief could be, well if that's the way it works, if Sin increases, it causes grace to abound more, then maybe we should sin more, then grace will abound more. Right? That would be a belief system that's wrong, but would drive behavior away from God. So instead of that, Paul confronts that and gives a definitive no, no. And he grounds it in these basic truths in 1 through 11 that those who are in Christ, those who are believers, are dead to sin and alive to God. I mean, he just lays that out. Because we've been joined to Christ. When Christ died, we died. And when Christ rose, we rose. So how could we continue in sin when God has done this great work for us? And now he comes down to the, really sort of like the applicational command that comes out of that. Look at verses 12 through 14. Romans six twelve through 14. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You can see from the word therefore at the beginning of verse 12 that he's going to take all that he said in 1 through 11 and draw a ramification or an implication of it. this It's true, you're dead to sin and alive to God, so here's what the conclusion for you ought to be. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And the language of these verses is really about the lordship of either God or sin. Notice he talks about in verse 12, do not let sin reign. It also talks about not obeying its lust. And then verse 14, sin shall not be your master or master over you. So so what Paul wants them to see is what ha- what's happened to them because of their relationship to Jesus Christ means that sin shouldn't reign they should not obey the lusts of sin and they don't have sin as a master all right so all of that's true and therefore their lives should be lived differently because of that they should be living themselves living as one who is alive from the dead to God and sin as Paul has done in 5 and 6 is is personified. It's treated as if it's a person, right? Don't let sin reign over you. Sin is not your master because sin stands opposed to God in these verses, right? And and so sin is this outside enemy that might exert its lordship over us if we obey it, but we should not because of what God's done for us in Christ. We should be living differently. So, I mean, at the heart of this passage is that there's only two ways to live, right? And one of those actually is death. You can live under sin, or you can live under God. And living under sin is actually death. So why would you want to live over there? That's what he's pushing pushing toward it. So what I want to do is just give you what I think is the main point because I think it's just it's pretty easy to see what it is but then we have to really sort of sink our teeth into it and and uh, and chew on it a bit. It's simply this don't let sin reign since it is no longer your master. All right? you you were under sin it was your master but you are no longer that, so don't let it reign. Right? It, it's contradictory to what God has done for you, for you actually to live as if you're still under the reign of sin, as if you still must obey it, as if it is your master. So don't, don't let sin reign over you. Don't live like that because it's not your master. And that's why, therefore, it points back to verse 11, Which says, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign. And verse 12 or verse 14 gives sort of the anchor reason for it. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. You shouldn't live that way because of what God's done. So what I want us to do is now sort of, sort of just dig into these verses a little more because of the truth that's here for us to think about. And I want to do it this way. There are, there are two spiritual realities that are the foundation point, right? Two things he says about us that are really the spiritual realities that are the foundation to the text. And then clearly there's commands in here. So those are spiritual responsibilities, that really are the focal point of it. So two two statements of spiritual realities. The first is this, is we are alive spiritually, but not glorified yet. All right? We're alive spiritually, but we are not glorified yet. That is, there's still a battle going on. And, and you can see that we're alive spiritually. Look in the middle, about the middle of verse 13. It says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. All right. And so they have spiritual life that is already their possession. He's not saying who will be alive to God, right? He's saying you are alive from the dead. So the dead here must be spiritual death that they have been made alive spiritually. In fact, that's, that shouldn't surprise us because back in verse four, remember he said that we should walk in newness of life. So so he's writing to people who are alive from the dead. Okay, They have spiritual life and so there's something about them that's fundamentally different. I mean, we talk about in doctrinal terms as regeneration, that is God imparts spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. Death spiritually means we're separated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in us because of the hardness of our heart. That's Ephesians 4. We're dead in trespasses and sins. We're alive physically, but spiritually we have no fellowship with God. We're cut off from him. But when a person comes to Christ, God is at work in them to give them the new birth so that they actually are alive from the dead. They're made alive in Christ. They now have spiritual life. They have fellowship with God, and they have the animating principle of eternal life in them to cause them to grow spiritually. All right, that's, that's what he's talking about when he says alive from the dead, so they can walk in newness of life. But notice he says, do not let sin reign. So they're alive from the dead, but not glorified yet. It is, we're alive in Christ, but we haven't been made perfect yet. We still have a battle with sin. We still are in, in the language of the text is, our mortal body. Right? That we're actually still influenced by the, the effects of sin in this world. Both in our physical weakness, but also in our spiritual possibility of being drawn away to obey the lusts of this world. Right? And, and that's important to understand because sometimes people, uh, people either leave us to Almost like spiritually comatose, and we we don't have any ability to follow Christ or they they overshoot too far and want to somehow have us live above sin in some way, but the scriptures are always very clear that in between the point of our new birth and the glorification that comes at the resurrection okay there is there's a battle as long as i'm In the flesh, and what I mean by that is physically, right? Remember Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. When he says flesh there, he's not talking about the sinful part of like the spirit and the flesh warring against each other in Galatians 5. He's actually talking about the inner outer person. The inner man is willing, but the outer person is weak. Remember, he's telling them to stay awake. They want to pray, but they're falling asleep. They're struggling with the ramifications of the fact of their frail humanity, and it was making them susceptible to temptation. Right, and you and I live in that tension that we live in what this text talks about, a mortal body. Look at verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. Now, if you've been here through the series, you know I've already talked about the fact that he's not saying here that the body is somehow evil. Okay, What he's saying is, when he uses the word mortal, is to emphasize the pre-resurrection state. Right. Your body is destined to death if Christ doesn't return. And, and because the effects of the curse are still felt there, you and I live under the influences of this fallen world. We are not free from them. We can't, we can't somehow get into a state where we don't feel temptation. We don't struggle with obedience. All right, those are all false promises from systems of sanctification that that really uh, don't take into consideration the reality of what it's like to live at, at the level. I think usually people are uh, deceiving themselves when they start talking about that. I remember mean, year—I mean, this would be forty years ago—I heard an old Southern preacher say, "The only way you can live above sin is if you rent a room over a pool hall." And what he's mean is like, you know, everything's going on, sin's down there, and you can live above it if you've got the room upstairs, but, but in reality, you're not going to, right? You're going to have to fight with sin because until the resurrection, you have not fulfill, received the full redemption that Christ offers you. And I state it that way because look over chapter eight, and, and sometime in 2023, we'll get there. I right, look at verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. All right, so salvation is not completed until that point of resurrection glorification. And until that point, there's a groaning inside because we're still engaged in the conflict that comes with the curse on creation. Right, but we're alive from the dead, yet not glorified. So as long as we're in our mortal body, it's possible for us to mistakenly and wrongly let sin reign. And how would we do that? Look at, go back to chapter six. You let sin reign when you obey its lusts, all right? Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts, all right? And as well, look at verse 13. I'm gonna come back to that in a moment, but look at verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. And I take members here, so, so I think the way to think about it this way, a mortal body is not trying to put a gap between me and my body, right? I'm a, I'm a human, and humans are material and immaterial, right? I'm, I'm inner and outer person, right? I have been given spiritual life, but I, that has not been perfected yet. God began a work. He's continuing it until the day of Christ. While he's continuing it, there's always going to be this tension because I live subject to the influences of the fallen world. And therefore, when he says mortal body, he's talking about the person as he relates to the fallen creation around him. And so members... I should think bigger than just so, so don't use your hand, you know, be careful little hands, what you do, be careful little eyes, what you see. That's what we might think about the members, and it's certainly a part of it, but what it's really probably talking about, I like the way one commentator says, it's my natural capabilities or capacities. The things I can do in this world should not be done as instruments of unrighteousness. So my actions, my My abilities, my capabilities should not be presented as instruments to be used by unrighteousness unto sin. All right, so there's the possibility that that could happen in my life, right? And I think if we're all humble and honest, we could probably look back over the last 168 hours and think, yeah, it's not just a theoretical possibility, the reality it is that, that I have at times yielded to sin in ways that obeyed its lust, and therefore I was presenting my abilities as an instrument of unrighteousness, to sin, because I 'm not yet fully sanctified I 'm not yet made perfectly holy. that's the tension I'm alive. Yet not glorified yet, and that's the problem that he would wrestle with. Right? So God's begun the work, and but it won't be complete until the day of Christ. Right, so let's so that's that's one truth. Look down to verse 14, because here's the second one, and, and it's really it's almost like a you know, the 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 other side of the coin from it, and that's this we are in a spiritual battle, but certain of victory. Notice the language of verse 12, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Paul uses here language that it's, I mean, it's it's future tense, right? Shall not be master over you. He's, he's looking at the believer and saying, as you live your life and you look down the road of your life toward its end sin shall not be your master. Right? He's he's making a statement about a reality for them. He's not saying in this verse, he's not saying do not let sin be your master. He's saying sin shall not be your master. It won't be true of you. Why? For you are not under law, but under grace. He's actually making a statement about them not a command to them. Sin shall not be your master. Why? Because you're not under the law, but under grace. God has removed you from under the law. Because First Corinthians 15 says the power of sin is the law. Right? The law caused sin to increase, we saw in chapter 5. Under the law, we are captured by our sinfulness. But God has set us free from the law, and we are under grace. Grace is what rules over us. And because grace rules over us, sin shall not. Right? You have a new master. You have a new Lord. And it's Christ. And he reigns over your life in grace, and grace... Rules in righteousness. Go back to chapter 5 and verse 21, because remember this this is all all together. All right, we break it up into chapters and verses, but Paul's writing a letter, and look what he says in chapter 5, verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So when you're under sin, sin reigns through death. It it captures you as an instrument of unrighteousness and if you're under its if you are under it then the pathways to death but you are not under it you're under grace so sin shall not be your master it won't happen It's true of you right now. Sin is not your master and it's going to be true of every point along your way until glorification. It shall not be master over you. So don't let it reign. It's an alien ruler in your life. It has no rightful claim. It can pull out a card and say, hey, I'm boss here and it's not true. If you're in Christ, sin is not your master. You are not under its obligation. You'll fight with it. You'll struggle with it. The battle will be real, but it has no real claim over you as master. You're alive from the dead, yet not glorified right you in fact have right you have a spiritual battle that's happening but it is certain to end in victory i mean this is this is the promise of god if you're in christ the battle is going to be won by christ you won't lose it you won't lose it and that might strike you as odd but Think about what Paul says. He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ. That's just another way of saying you will not lose it. Right? Who made you alive? Who began it? Who will complete it? And who is continuing it? Right? That's another way of saying sin shall not be master over you. Christ has claimed you as His. He bought you with the price of His blood and has made you His own. He is not going to give you up. He is not going to surrender His purchase to Lord's sin. Christ is Lord. He will rule over those that He has purchased. He will win the battle. All right, so let's just zero in before we look at the responsibility at what the battle is because I, I, I pointed out in verse 12 that you obey its lust. And I think this is the way we need to think about this battle, if I could put it this way. We are either going to live under the power of lust or we're going to live under the promise of life. All right, when you let sin reign, you are obeying its lusts, right? When you present yourself to God, you're doing so as one who is alive from the dead and who believes the promise of God that sin shall not be your master, right? It really does come down to that issue. Sin seeks to reign through, through us obeying its lust. I mean, this is what Paul picks up in Ephesians chapter four when he, he starts in 4.17 saying, do not walk any longer as the Gentiles walk who do not know God. Basically, they, they are walking, he says, uh, having their hearts hardened through the ignorance is in them, uh, being handed over to lasciviousness. That's not the pathway to live. right? You did not learn Christ in this way if indeed you have learned Christ, and then he talks about what the, the the work of God is. Having put off the old self, which is being corrupted according to the deceitful lust, or the lust of deceit. Right? You know what the old life is? It's going consistently downward under the deception of lust right which is being corrupted according to the lust of deceit All right so humanity is constantly being sh- snared into the promise of sin through lust and being taken captive by it you know you know the passage that the teacher James James says this, right? Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed, right? So sin is out here beckoning your attention, trying to stir some desire in you for it that will entice you and bait you and draw you into its snare. That's the way sin operates. It has power over us as we consider and yield toward its offer, right? The promise of pleasure, the the promise of, uh, I mean, you, you could take it like John does, right? All those in the world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, right? It's, it's appealing to our desire for gratification of fleshly desires, For exaltation of pridely desires, pridely, proud desires, desires for pride, something like that. All right, or or things that appeal to us. I mean, in some ways, you could take those three, and I think we have to be careful with it. But you could take those three things, right? Lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, and go right back to the garden, and you see Satan saying to Adam and Eve, "Can't you see that it's good?" This is able to make you wise. There's something desirable here, right? They could satisfy their physical desires. It was attractive to them. And there was a promise attached to it that they would be like God. And and that was the bait that drew the desire from them. and, And they chose sin. That's the fight. We live in a world where, as we walk through this world, it is appealing to desires associated with life in this world which are contrary to God's will. Right? It's, it's sometimes for things that are completely outside of God's will, things we'd normally describe as immoral but sometimes it's even for good things outside of God's will by being out of balance or out of time, right? God has certain boundaries for these things that say, this is the right time and place to enjoy this gift from me. And Satan wants us to step outside of God's good boundaries to satisfy our desires because we want what we want when we want it and to the degree that we want it, right? So God, draw, or, or Satan and sin draw us out by those desires. And the, the battle is, will we say yes to those impulses, those passions, those lusts, or will we say yes to the promise of God that he has something better for us? Even if that better isn't something we get until the resurrection, right? Now, Because I don't want to offer a false promise, right? That just because you say no to sin means you're going to all of a sudden get some tangible, immediate blessing, right? The point in we talking about in your mortal body, he's trying to trigger for us what he's been saying all along. We will be raised with Christ, right? So why would you... Live for something that's passing away instead of something that lasts forever. That's the tension. We see it all the time in scripture, right? Do not love the world, neither things in the world. For all in the world, lust flesh, lust of eyes, boasts for pride life, is passing away. But the one who do, does the will of the Father abides forever. Right? Do we jump? Do we jump for the immediate blessings? Air quotes, offered to us by sin, or do we trust God and hold out for the blessings that he has for us? And, and that's, uh, that, in many ways, that's just, it's really that simple. But what complicates it, right, is the intensity of the battle and I would suggest to you, and, and I don't think, I think this has been the case ever since the garden, right? But I think, I think we actually live in a world now that has so turned its back on God and has placed us at the center of human existence that the idea of me not satisfying my desires, not getting what I want, not pursuing my own happiness, that, that that almost is, it's like heresy in our day. I mean, God can't want me to be unhappy. So, so if me fighting this sin results in my unhappiness, that, that's, something's wrong with that. Right now, most of us, because when I say that, you're like, well, well, why would I be fighting my unhappiness? Well, what if that sin means not fulfilling your responsibilities? Right, What 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 if the lust or desire is for someone other than your spouse and you've now associated your happiness with being out of that relationship and into this one? And you and your mind have moved it from this is a battle over sexual sin to this is a battle over my happiness. This is about my happiness. I mean, it's really not about the sexual sin. It's about my happiness. I'm not happy with him or I'm not happy with her and I'll be happy with him or her. So what you've done is allowed the cultural self-centeredness and individual idolatry of our day to actually sort of eclipse what is clearly the sin side of it, so that you can think of it as your personal identity and happiness and, and joy. And, 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 and behind that temptation has to be the devil and his army just chuckling up their sleeve. Can you believe the wool that we've pulled over these people's eyes? I mean, we've, we've convinced an entire culture that the individual happiness of every person is actually the most important principle by which life should be ordered, right? The fundamental principle of our culture is your personal happiness. And here's what you have to understand. That cannot be the fundamental principle if you believe there's a God. Because if there really is a God, then His will is the fundamental principle. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, then certainly you can't think your personal fulfillment and happiness is the driving center of the universe. You know that there's a God who loved you enough to give His Son to purchase you from sin so that you could actually find joy in Him. Right, And His joy is in His presence where it's full and everlasting. Right? So it's the, it's the promise of satisfaction in sin versus the promise of satisfaction in God. And and that's the battle. And we have to recognize that when we live our lives for his purpose, using our abilities as instruments of righteousness for him, that's when God's reigning in our life. All right, so now let's look at the spiritual responsibilities that flow out of these things. And they're in the commands. Notice verse 12 Do not let sin reign. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. And, implied, present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And here's what I think is... Uh, I think is a really helpful passage for us to think about because what it does do is it gives us a healthy, I think, and helpful view of sanctification. Right? Sanctification, much of what Paul's been writing up this point has been about justification. That is that, that our standing before God is either as a sinner condemned or as righteous and accepted in Christ. All right, that's, that's a legal standing before God. God looks at us in his courtroom and we're either guilty or we're justified. But the work of God by which he takes justified people and actually makes them like his son, that's the process of sanctification. That God is making us holy. He's conforming us to his godliness and this passage helps us understand a lot about that right because what it does first of all is it it builds sanctification on Christ's work as those who are alive from the dead right you're you're not letting sin reign and you're not presenting your members as instruments isn't the process by which you come to life. It is actually the outgrowth of the fact that you're alive. What Christ did precedes what your responsibility is. And you have to understand that. What Christ did, He made us alive through His death, burial, and resurrection, now is the foundation on which I begin to walk in newness of life. Right? I do not... Let sin reign because I'm alive. Right? It's it flows out that way. It's the the indicative of what God has done for us and made us that leads to these imperatives or commands. I think it's also important to recognize that this is something which we can do. We are alive as those who are alive from the dead. You might be sitting here this morning going, well, pastor, you're saying do not let sin reign. I mean, I, I can't, I, I'm, I'm defeated, I can't. I mean, I, I have no strength or ability to fight sin. And I'd say to you, you're wrong. If you are alive from the dead, you actually can fight sin. You cannot let sin reign. You can present your bodies to God rather than to sin. You cannot present your members to sin. Because God did something to you. It didn't just change your standing before the court. He actually made you alive in Christ. You have the Spirit of God dwelling in you, and you have a new nature. You can, in fact, obey God. You can, in fact, fight sin. It's not a dream. It's not something way outside the the boundaries of where you live. It actually is what God has done for you. So you can, in fact, engage this fight. God has given you the ability to do that by, by virtue of the new birth. And therefore... It is something for which you are responsible. Who, who, is, who's the, who, who receives this command? Do not let sin reign. Is that given to God or you? It's not a trick question. Is God being told, don't let sin reign in Him? Or are you being told, do not let sin reign in your mortal body"? Like, boom, right? You are if you're in Christ. It's something that you have a responsibility to do. God has called you to go to battle with sin. And you have a responsibility to fight that fight. So, so the, 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 the teaching sometimes of people who want to, I think, make this a lot more mystical than it is, Right? The way you grow is you sort of let go and let God. You just sort of like, mmm, get in some kind of spiritual state, and then God moves you. And you get, get in that spiritual state again and moves you. And if you actually begin to struggle, you're going backward. Right? I mean, there's good people have taught stuff like this, but it's like if there's any struggle with sin going on in your life, then you're in the flesh. That's baloney. That is, you cannot find that anywhere in the Scripture. You are called to put to death the deeds of the body. You are called to not let sin reign. You're called to present yourself to God and not present yourself to sin. And the reason you are told those things is because he who began a good work in you is continuing it. And he's doing it like this. Philippians 2.12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who's at work in you to want and work for his good pleasure. It is your responsible participation in the process of sanctification. That's what God calls us to do. I often read theological definitions, but this is a good one to think about in terms of this, right? Sanctification is the gracious operation of the Holy Spirit involving our responsible participation by which he delivers us from the pollution of sin, renews our entire nature according to the image of God, and enables us to live lives that are pleasing to him. Right? So it's the work of God by his spirit, right, which is removing the pollution of sin. We talk about justification, the penalty of sin. Sanctification is the process of the the power of sin has been broken. And and God is working to eliminate the pollution of sin in our lives. Glorification is the presence of sin is gone and pollution completely. Right, so in between my conversion and my glorification, God by His Spirit is cleaning out the mess. And He's making me like Jesus Christ and He's doing so by enabling me to live a life that's pleasing to God, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who's at work in you to want and work for His good pleasure, right? So my desires start to get shaped toward what pleases God and my energy is spent pursuing what's pleasing to God. That's what he enables me to do. That's the work of sanctification and that's where this text fits in, right? We actually have the promise and power of God to pursue a life that is like what we've been made alive for to not let sin reign, to not be instruments of unrighteousness, but rather to be instruments of righteousness. That's what God's done for us. And so we need to have a responsible participation of it. So Sir, so all that's driving to I'm trying to just bury something in your brain this morning, okay? Sanctification progressive progressive sanctification as I move forward in the Christian life. Let me just let me put it this way and 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 hopefully it can be memorable, all right? Progressive sanctification involves choices controlled by our convictions and our confidence. All right? Here's, here's why I call it choices. Do not let sin reign. Do not go on presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness. So, so as I live my life, I'm walking down the pathway of life. I'm going to hit a million forks in the road where sin is going to want to exercise its reign over me. But it has no right to reign over me. So here's what the command of God that should govern my choice is. Do not let sin reign. Do not present yourself to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. Don't obey its lusts. Choose the other option, but present yourself to God as those alive from the dead, and your instruments, your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Progressive sanctification involves choices in my life. I'm responsible for making choices that are consistent with what I believe to be true. Remember I started Beliefs Drive Behavior? And at every fork in the road, I'm going to give evidence to what I truly believe. I'm going to go, I really need this. I mean, I know God says it's not good for me, but I think it is good for me. Or at least it's good for me right now. At least it's, it's what I'm going to do because I want it. right? That's, that's the path of sin. I'm making a choice there. Every choice to sin, every, every act of sin, every, every heart of sin is rooted in a choice. Everyone is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Right? I, I've got to recognize I am not a robot. I'm not an animal conditioned so that, so that sin rings the bell and I just respond to the instinct without any choice. I'm a human made in the image of God, which means I'm a responsible decision maker. I make choices, I do what I want. What controls what I want? It's got to be my beliefs. Right? I actually have to make choices that are controlled by my convictions and my confidence. Right? The reason I use the word controlled is because of the way the, uh, the conjunctions really are in here. Verse 12, Therefore, And at the beginning of verse 14, for sin shall not be your master, for you are not under grace. What those words are doing is showing us the logic of God's truth here. Why should you choose not to let sin reign? Why should you choose not to present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but choose to present yourself to God and to present your members as instruments of righteousness? Why? Therefore, for, for, The therefore is, you're dead to sin and alive to God. So why would you go that way? For sin shall not reign over you, shall not be your master. So why would you go that way? Go this way. For you're not under law, but under grace. Why would you go back under law? Why would you turn back to sin? Turn toward grace. Right, it's, it's precisely at those conjunctions or explanations of what matters that I see that my choices get framed by what I believe, my convictions, and, and where my confidence is. And the Word of God is constantly turning us this way. Know what God's done for you. You're dead to sin, alive to God. Know what God has set you free from. You're no longer under sin. It shall not be your master. Realize the grace that God offers to you so that you don't buy the false promises over here. Because sin goes, freedom's over here. Right? Because it gives itself the impression of being the easy path. It's easier to say yes to sin than to say no to sin, so we mistakenly think, well, if it's easier to say yes, then this must be the path of freedom. But it actually is the path to slavery, right? I mean, we know this, just take it out of the spiritual realm, right? There's there's a million things that are the easy thing to do that will lead you into poverty or or physical ill health or whatever. I mean, the, the easy path is the path of destruction. It's not the path of freedom. So that I have to say no to sin and yes to God doesn't mean freedom's over here. No, freedom's over here. It's what God's promised me over here that is truly freedom. And I have to constantly remind myself of that. I have to stop and think about the truth of God when I face these forks in the road. And especially since this one is shouting at you. Right? It's screaming at you. Oh, you deserve this. This will be great. It, it, only once. It's not, it's not going to destroy your life. Right? It just... Bells and whistles that when you unwrap it is full of a deadly viper. Right? God offers genuine freedom. And so our convictions must be driven by that. We're alive from the dead. We are under grace. And our confidence has to be in what God has said to us. Sin shall not be master over you. So so I can, in fact... I can, in fact, choose the right path. I can pursue Christ. I can pursue obedience because God's promised it. So what I think a passage like this does is help us understand that there is no neutrality. Right? It's very clear. You're either going to let sin reign or God reign. There's no Switzerland in the spiritual fight. Right? You are either going to yield yourself as a, as an instrument of unrighteousness or you're going to yield yourself as an instrument of righteousness. There's just, there's just no middle ground, no neutrality. I mean, he sets it up very clearly. It's almost like they're just right there, right? You've got sin and God. You've got unrighteousness and righteousness, right? You can be an instrument of unrighteousness or an instrument of righteousness and you are that by whether or not you present your members, your abilities, your capabilities to unrighteousness and sin or to righteousness in God. And and it comes down to whether you give priority to your mortal body and its immediate temptations, obey its lusts, or whether you live to God, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead. I mean, it just flows that way. And we need to see the absolute nature of that because, because it's in the fog and the gray that we get comfortable living on the sin side of the equation. Right? We're always going to have the fight. Don't I said it, we're alive but not glorified. So there's going to be a fight. I am not saying you can be all righteousness or you're all unrighteous. That's not going to happen. But what we can do is go, well, I'm always going to be a fight, so it's not that big a deal. You know, I'm a sinner. That's just the way it works. And what we miss is the serious nature of it, right? Think about that. At the top of these is sin and God. And, And I'm revealing what I prize most, what I love most, by whom I serve. It's not an insignificant thing. It's not a minor thing. So there's no neutrality. There's no passivity. These are commands. I need to obey what God said. And there should be no hesitancy, right? I I really got to overcome the tendency to think, well, if I really commit to God, I might, I mean, what if I fall again? Or what if I I mess up? Or what if I don't make it? Okay, again, I'm telling you, when you have those kinds of thoughts going through your head, they are not from God. Right? God is not whispering in your ear, hey, I'm not sure you're going to make this. I mean, hey, here you go again. I mean, what is this? The 20th time you've fallen, why bother even getting up at this point? Do you think that's from God? Not a chance. That is not what God is saying to you. God is saying to you sin shall not be a master over you. So don't let sin reign. Do not go on presenting your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourself as those alive from God, alive from the dead to God. Present your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Don't live for the shallow, superficial, and and actually suffocating gifts that sin will give you. Live for the God who made you alive, has promised to you an eternal life, who knows what really is your greatest need at any given moment, and therefore offers to you what you really need. Live for him. Live for him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can have confidence in your work in us because as as chapter 8 will say, if you did not spare your own son but freely gave him up for us, how much more, how much more Will you give us all that we need? Lord, help us to have confidence in you and convictions shaped by your word and therefore make choices that are controlled by those things because we must not let sin reign if we have been set free. Help us not to surrender to this alien enemy but to live under the lordship of Jesus Christ